9999. Hey, remember when we got canceled? Nope. Uh-uh. You don't? Oh, wait, Joel. Are you okay? What? Yes, I'm fine. I, I'm just saying I don't want to remember that. Oh, that's smart. Such a dark time. What time? The time we got canceled. Mm, nope. I don't know what you're talking about. But, ah, uh, I gotcha. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Nine-nine. Nine-nine. Welcome to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the podcast. I'm Mark Evan Jackson. I play Kevin. On this segment, we look beyond the Brooklyn Nine-Nine comedy to which we are accustomed and focus on some of the more hard-hitting episodes and the balance of comedy and seriousness therein. Specifically, we'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 16, Moo Moo, which received high praise and critical review for doing a story on police profiling and the act of doing the right thing, especially when not being in the right position or rank to do so. With us today to talk about the episode and more is co-executive producer and writer Justin Noble and Terry Cruz, who plays Terry Jeffords. Terry and Justin, 9-9. Thanks for being here. 9-9. Welcome, you guys. Thanks for being here. Good, Happy you. to be here. Uh, Justin, we were talking a little bit earlier. Remind me, uh, how long have you been with the show? So I have been with the show for now five years. Uh, I started at the start of season three. Uh, when we met Bill Hader as the new captain. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, now about 98 episodes ago. Good heavens. Is that right? Yeah. Are there, like, I'm sure that you do... The character evolution, you said, is necessary for you to be able to forge new ground and do things. In addition to turning out wonderful stories, characters we care about, um, and obviously, you know, crisp comedy and, and hilarious moments throughout, something that this show does really deftly is deal with larger social issues. We've had it in the form of um, episode five, I'm sorry, season five, episode 20, Show Me Going, which was about an active shooter. Um, do you remember that episode that was, uh, that was Rosa was largely gone during it, right? Of course. I think yeah. we just hear a radio mm -hmm. call, right? Yeah. And that was an active decision we made in the room that we wanted to tackle it. But at the end of the day, we are, you know, a network comedy and we didn't want to be in the thick of it in terms of the actual shooting element. And it was more interesting for us to think about how it was affecting our family back at the precinct. Mm -hmm. So there's a call of an active shooter. This sort of deals with two different, uh, issues, obviously, we are plagued in this country uh, with mass shootings. They seem to happen several times per week. Uh, not seem to. I think that's accurate. Also, uh, it gives us a window into the professional life of these of these law enforcement officials. That this isn't you know these are the people that run into danger when bad <laughs> things happen. Um, you know this this show does that really nicely. I think like uh, policing is complicated, right? Uh, I mean, as we'll talk about in in a little bit about Moo, like. Um, it's imperfect. They're, these are oftentimes, I think, predominantly heroic people doing great things. And in as much as there are human people, uh, there are plenty of flaws. Absolutely. And it's it's just one of those things for both of those episodes where we're not like a case of the week style show. But right. Where we are tuned into the news enough to see that there are things happening that we are obligated to address, uh, you know, and and happy to do so. Um happy being an interesting word choice but <laughs> but like we you know we want to put out there how we feel about things that are going on and show me going and moo moo are, are two strong examples of that i i do want to add to that um just the fact that you know if you if you ignore these kind of things um i, I i've always felt like brooklyn 99 could have been in danger of becoming a cartoon mm. yes and uh, you know it's one of those things where people you know 
it, our fans are pretty rabid. And uh, also, there were a lot of comedies that were t- tackling a lot of heavier issues, what I would call dramedies. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there was a big mix of of what people could handle in their comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit, it was a little bit heavy. We could get a little heavier with the time. And I loved it. I, I just was very, very happy uh, with that decision to kind of, you know, to take us into, without without losing the comedic element mm-hmm. of what we are, but also just not ignoring, you know, these issues that are just all around us, all over the place. To me, um, when I look at the best comedians, they tend to have heavy lives or deal with really heavy subjects like George Carlin or Chris Rock. And that makes it funnier. It makes it mm-hmm. actually more, you're tied in and you can really laugh better. It's it's human, right? I mean, it, t- it touches those things that are most universal, things that, that a lot of us uh, run into and, and feel strong feelings about. Yeah. Uh, you, you've done it as well with uh, season five, episode 10, Game Night. That was... Um, uh, was that linked to Rose's coming out? That was, yes. That was Rose's coming out episode. Mm-hmm. He Said, She Said is another one. That's season six, episode eight. That's a sexual harassment episode. Um, again, hilarious. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine throughout it, but it, it tackles this complicated issue about sexual harassment in the workplace and what it means to be a woman. And um, something interesting happens in that one that, that also happens in Moomoo, which is that, um, you know, we see... Uh, Andy Samberg, Andy Samberg's portrayal of Jake Peralta, um, we we witness his white privilege, like you know his white male privilege. He, I, I think you know we we see him as we see in Mumu, him saying like, I don't like this doesn't come up for me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and yet uh, Amy is able to say. This is stuff like this has happened to literally every woman I've ever met. You know? Yeah. One scene I really love in Moo it's it's a smaller scene and the scale of it is just when Terry's in the break room and he's like kind of reiterating what had happened the night before. And there's just a, a number of them are just not understanding. Right. Until Rosa says like, oh, I get it. It's such a powerful thing. Let's talk about Moo It's season four, episode 17, written by Phil Augusta Jackson, directed by Maggie Carey. Um, at the beginning, the cold open, I think, is you and uh, you and Boyle dressed alike, right? Yeah. He's got a stri- <laughs> who wore it best. <laughs> uh, who wore it best? So crazy. Uh, I love that one. Uh, I like that. I always love the stuff between me and Charles. It's so funny. It's a great dynamic. Oh my god! Yeah, it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. His blind spot is gigantic. Yeah, you know, like uh-huh. boils and growing. Yeah, he should, yes. he should have it looked at. <laughs> he doesn't see it. Like, you don't see this. Yeah, oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. The fact that he's like, you know, we should have a contest, and I mean, his consistent references to you know being as buff as you kind of yeah, thing is right, just yes. crazy. Um, <laughs> I think it's in here too that uh, Jake's like you should go change, not here. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, really fun and uh, just a lot of craziness. Um, Mumu is a reference to Cagney's blanket, is that right? Mm-hmm. Which gets lost along a walk. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess let's talk at first of like where does this come from? Um, how was it broached in the room that that this story got told? Or do you know where that came from? Well, it was a little bit like what I was saying earlier about like, we just have seen this story unfold in the real world so many times. So we were like, okay, we're going to address this for sure. And to be honest, this was one of the harder episodes for us to crack. We, I would say we broke 
maybe three or four different versions of this story because we just were so, it was so important to us to make sure we got it right. Mm. Um, and so I actually wasn't in the room. I was on set when uh, the Moo Moo version of it was born. Interesting. Uh, but I remember coming back and I had been in the room for the three previous versions. And I remember coming back and being like, oh, we found it. We're wow. good to go. Uh, and then Phil went off and wrote an amazing first draft. It's probably one of the drafts that's been rewritten the least over the history of our show. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, it, yeah. it, I mean, parts of it unfold just like a, a well-written play. Yeah. Andre, Andre had some amazing insights um, even as we were doing mm. it. And it was, it was wild because that week we talked in depth um, just about the angles we were going to take. Uh, but because we also knew that no one had ever seen this before. I mean, the fact that here we had two African-American police officers on television discussing the the, the racial profiling issue. Yeah. Um, something that both Andre and I have experienced in real life. Is that true? Um, you know, and I, I it's it's wild because, you know, I remember, I remember um, I was in the NFL and I remember I was driving around in LA and, you know, yeah, I got pulled over and you just think, you know, what, what is this about? Cause the first thing that comes into your head. And for me is I automatically know because I've been treated like a grown man since I was 11, uh, growing up in Flint, Michigan, you know what they're thinking. Uh, and, and, and it's wild because I had my hands on 10 and two, I rolled my window down. I knew the technique. Yeah, to save my own life. Uh, it's almost like uh, you know the techniques if you're drowning or anything. It's just like you already know the the, the path. That's horrifying. And this officer still came up to walked up to my window with his gun drawn. I'll never forget. I mean, if anyone's ever had a police officer point a gun right at you, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to describe it. There's something that you just go. I mean, you feel, you start envisioning your kids, your wife, your family, you know, and I'm just sitting there like, please, please don't let him get jumpy. Please just don't let him right. See, right. think something else. And then he's like, I need your license and identification. He's yelling. He's aggressive. And all I knew to do was just calm it down. I was like, yes, sir. I'm reaching for my right. license. Sir. You narrate what your movements yeah, are. You have mm. to, but, but any bit of comeback, it's a yeah. wrap. And you, you just know, and I'm too big. It's one of these, they're not going to fight you. <laughs> You're not like, okay, you, you, you'll you be the first one to take a bullet. So knowing that and coming into Mumu, I was like, oh boy. And all so many emotions came back. So many feelings, so much. It was, it was a, an intense week mm -hmm. to I say the it. least. Yeah. Yeah. And Terry was so integral to the writing process, too. Terry came in and had lunch with the writers, and, and we picked his brain about everything that he's been through, like he's alluding to in here. And it was it was so helpful to have that so that we could lend that level of authenticity to what was happening in what the story. Were, what were you told, Terry? They said, we'd like you to come into the writer's room because we're going to broach the subject? Or Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, and I appreciated it. I was, you know, because let me tell you, I, sometimes you get your, you know, the fact that someone wants to hear your how you feel about it. I've been on different shows where nobody really cared what you thought. It was just like, these are the words, but not here. It, it's never been like that here. And it's always been a thing of let's get your perspective. Um, and this is one thing we do even in the off season, which is awesome. Uh, everyone gets a meeting with the writers and everyone gets to right? talk about, oh, it's oh, yeah. beautiful. It's beautiful. It's been that way since the season, season one. 
Um, you know, talk about your arc. What do you see about it? How do you see your character? And I'm going, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally when I walked in, I was like, wow, you know. I didn't know this. I've never heard oh, of this yeah. before. It's, yeah. it's fun for us too, because we, I would say we try to do it about three or four weeks into pre-production so that we have kind of a board of ideas and then we'll throw them out at, at the cast and, and kind of gauge and look at their eyes and see what they're sparking to. Cause it also helps us to know it's like another sign off. Yeah. You know, if that's working for Terry, then it probably works for us. Yeah. You know, I, I also came to some insights while I was doing the show um, that surprised me. Uh, you know, it was weird because you start to think, um, you know, this, the term racism and hate get thrown around a lot. Sure. It's like they hate me and it's racism and isn't it? But then I, I read a quote by Winston Churchill, who was often accused of being racist himself. Uh, sure. <laughs> but, he, but, the quote said that he said you can it, people think that um, when you do something very heinous and violent to a people that it's because they hate them but but that's not true the all of the intense violence and and uh and callousness comes from self-righteousness mm. and that blew me away that was a whole nother thing and i was like wait a minute because I was like, because the, the t- common term is you're a, you're you're abusing me, you are uh, you're hurting me because you hate me, right? But the real, but when I thought about it like that, it was the fact that no, it's not it's not even hate at all. It's the fact that I believe that I am right. Yeah, I am so right that yeah. I can do this to you. That changes the whole picture. In fact, that I have this authority right. to do this to you. And then I, that gave me a different perspective because hate, it seems like something out of like, oh, I just you know, look at you. Uh. But I, when everyone, can, it's hard to you to imagine yourself hating people, but you can imagine everybody at some time in their life has been self-righteous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and that's, that's it's, it opened it up for me. Like I was like, whoa, because everyone at one time or another, you feel like I'm right. I am right here. Yeah. And you that was I mean? so important to us when we were writing Mumu that we didn't, that when we developed this other character of this cop who was in the wrong, Officer Maldak, that we had him be right headed in his own mind. Yeah. He's not a cartoon who just hates minorities and is out trying to hurt them. He had an argument that he was trying to make. And it was incredibly flawed, but that wasn't apparent to him. Right. What happens in this episode, as you will recall, is that, uh, uh, Cagney's blanket gets lost during a walk and uh, after work one night uh, Terry comes home realizes it's gone uh, Cagney can't sleep without it and goes out looking for it finds it and then is stopped by a white uh, uniformed officer I think right mm-hmm. um, and is accosted right is treated you know presumed guilty of being in the wrong neighborhood um, all of that and what you're saying uh, is that this officer's rationale was that like you have to admit it. You don't look like you belong in that neighborhood. Uh, that statistically speaking, the number of calls I get are for people like you know are in response to uh, uh, black men, people in that neighborhood that match your description. Oh. Yeah, um, you're felt- right. In his mind, it's like I'm just doing my job. Like That's I'm not it. gonna. He, he could have arrested a guy who looked like me last week, and he and the guy was guilty. So he's like, "There's another mm-hmm. one." Yeah, but I live there. And you were wrong. And um, it, it was so, believe me, it just reminded me of so many things. And, and the, 
the argument that was brought up when uh, Andre and I met at, you know, you guys' house, mm -hmm. um, it was wild because another thing, too, was this, this d dynamic of how change is going to happen. How, what are you going to do about it? Now, now that's the question. Like, how are we going to handle this? And, you know, Andre had a brilliant argument and he actually brought it up. Just the fact that, hey, man, there's a there's a way to do everything. You can run around and, and just shake everything up, but you have to work your way into a position where people will respect you and really, you know, are you going to make change? Are you going to have to work your way to the top for things to happen? Mm -hmm. And whereas I, my argument was like, hey, man, we can shake it up right now. Call it, right. Call it when you see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I have to say, and I'm going to jump episodes here. Sure, please. Um, even with he said, she said. Uh, now, what was wild is that I am a member of the Me Too movement. Uh, simply because I was assaulted sexually at a party by an agent and my wife was right there and the agency did not back me up. Uh, I was left on my own devices and I, but I still wanted to work. Right. See, that's the thing. I mean, this is the, and that's again, the this club. Happens that's the threat, women, right? But I was a male victim, which allowed me to see this thing. And, and, and this was, and I'll tell you, it wasn't something I automatically saw. My wife came to me and said, this happened to me and every woman I know. Let me tell you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I literally was like, "What? how do I handle this, baby? She said, sit down and let me school you on what this whole thing is. And I was, my mind, cause see, again, it's it's almost like there's a brick wall. And it's it's the same thing as that that hate self-righteousness thing or, you know, this whole male, female sexual harassment thing. It's like, well, because a lot of guys feel like, I didn't get, that didn't happen to me. I'm too big. Right. Right. But oh, what yeah. does that mean? It's I like, remember people saying that about you when this happened. They're like, come on. But that, that's, that's like saying a house is too large to get robbed. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean? It's like, well, look, man, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I took that, but look how big that house is. You know, you're like, but wait, that makes no sense. I feel like still, you yeah. still stole it. I feel like you also got a lot of like walk it off, man up kind of exactly. stuff at that time, which exactly. is right. straight. But but a what, horrific what I, argument to yeah. make. Yeah, but what I loved about the episode, he said, she said, was that she, the, the woman who was had been victimized, wanted to work too. Sure, she wanted to continue. Yeah. to do her job, to do the thing that she loved. And that's what you're talking about here. You're talking about, especially when you're talking about things of harassment and this kind of deal, you're talking about people who have your dreams hostage. Yeah. They're it, literally holding it up. But it almost works the same way with Mumu. Mm -hmm. Because he's got you hostage. Yeah. And do you want to continue this thing? Do you want to continue to be a cop? Do you, do you want to continue to live where you are if people are treating you this way? You, it's, it's so yeah. many parallels. It's really... I, I truly believe everything is connected when you're talking about people who believe that they are better than other people.
whether it's male, mm-hmm. whether you're white, self-righteousness all around. Sure. You and know what like, I mean? Like you're saying, like the burden is just always placed on the victim. They're mm-hmm. the person who has to take action next and decide what they're going to do. That's going to affect how the rest of that situation plays out for them. And that that's really important to us in the room. And that's why we land on things like Terry not getting that post in the mayor's yeah, office at right, the end right. of that episode that's or right. the woman not getting the exact plea deal that she wants out of the out of the employer. It's because almost every time the victim loses in some way, Mm -hmm. even after the incident. Mm -hmm. Well, the victim is asked immediately to respond in a, like, to make a gigantic choice while probably still processing and in crisis. Like, I'm sure, uh, you know, at at what happened to you, Terry, in the moment, you're like, well, this didn't just happen. Like, oh, no, like. I'm in an active crisis. I don't know how to respond to this kind of thing. Oh, I was, I literally was just like, what in the, now I, I gotta, I gotta say this too. Um, my, my, my wife made me promise in the, in the moment of the incident, uh, a few months before this, I would say almost a year or two before this, my wife made me promise to never react to anything violent mm. uh, because she's seen me throw people over her head. I mean, it's happened before. Okay, not I have some follow. Not, I know, have some follow at a bar <laughs> or people, and you're just like, what, what, and, and you know, and it's all of a sudden, whoop, whoop, and pop, boom, and he's on the ground, and there's yeah. people, and then we're leaving, and there's police <laughs> being called. My wife was like, "All right, listen," she said, "I got to, you got to make a deal with me," because she said, "We're gonna lose everything." Because you can get pushed into these things, and because I don't drink, I don't drink at all. But usually, the drunk, smallest drunk guy in the room wants me. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah. So she made me promise not to do this. Now, when this incident happened, there it was. Yeah. And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I grabbed her hand, and we left. And I kept my promise. And, and let me tell you, I want—I literally wanted to rip the steering wheel off. Oh, I'm sure. On the way home, and I wanted to drive back through there like Terminator. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, "I'm proud of you. I'm mm. proud of you." She just kept telling me, "I'm proud of you." And I learned, I said, okay, there's a different way to deal with these things. Now, but again, I still internalized it. But then when the women of the Me Too movement came forward, when the story came out about Harvey Weinstein and these women, and and I was like, oh my God. And what happened was all these men were saying, ah, they're just gold diggers, they're whatever, they just want money. And hey, look, that's the price of being in Hollywood. I could not. I couldn't remain silent. I just couldn't. I was on the set of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I started tweeting. Yeah. And I I couldn't stop. And I remember sending the tweets, closing my phone, doing a scene, and the world was totally different. And another thing that was different is that I was automatically believed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a privilege, right? That Uh, that was my privilege. Yeah. Automatically. There was no doubt he did it. Right. No one ever died. They was like, well, why are you saying something, though? But Right. What are but, you trying to get? But they didn't doubt that he was guilty. Whereas with the women, they were like, oh, you you brought him on. What, you what did were you wearing? Like, right. And that was a power of the movement at that point. When By the time that you had sent those tweets, there had been some credibility to this whole entire Me Too movement that led to people believing it. Like, yeah. you know, if you had sent out that tweet a year earlier or whenever the event happened, it was like it was like less than a year, right? But uh, but yeah, it, w- it could have been a very different story. Yeah. And if your wife hadn't said what she said, the story would have been Terry Crews assaults Agent. Terry beat Easy. up 
Terry that's, punched I mean, a person. That's the headline. Easy. That's extra, I mean, who extra would have believed? First yeah. of all, if, if, if I had knocked this guy out, the, the head of the motion picture department at William Morris Endeavor, if I had knocked him out, yeah. and, and God forbid, because let me say this, and this is the thing, anybody who says, you know, hey, just go hit, you, you should have hit him and all the things, you've never been in a fight. <laughs> I've been in a fight. And anything can happen. I mean, people die in a fight. You know, it's yeah. it's it's not pretty. And people, you know, you get a movie image of this whack, and then all of a sudden, cut to they're at home. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that. Bag of frozen peas on the head. You yeah, know what I'm right. Not, yeah. No, no. First of all, it's it's it, their lives ruined by all of a sudden a guy hits his head, boom, and the guy dies. Also, right. you were at a work event. Can you imagine being at a work event and then just knocking someone out? All of a sudden, I can. I'd yeah? have been like, oh no, I, I don't know. That. All the time. <laughs> no. I'm telling you. <laughs> but I, but again, you, you know what? And it's it's so crazy to me because it, it, you can also go into into Mumu when a lot of people are like, um, you know, after you've been profiled and this kind of thing. Um, and, and a lot of and I, it's funny because even as a, as a black man, you're expected to get uppity with the police, and you can't do it like. You can't, that is a game you're not going to win, ever. There's times where you have to, you, you listen, you lost this one. And, and that's the hardest thing ever. That's the most heartbreaking anecdote to, to me, is listening to you tell the story of your own experiences. And, and that moment where you have to be so calculated as to be saying, like, yes, sir, I'm reaching for this. Like, that headspace, which... I, I understand and I think is a smart move on your part to be that preemptive and to protect yourself. But that is that's just devastating to hear that that is a thought that has to go through your head in that moment. I mean, and it was a lot of things happening in the country at the time, you know, in this last eight years of doing Brooklyn Nine-Nine, there's been a lot of, yeah. of news like this. The world um, has changed. Right along with Me Too, there were a lot of police uh, on our black you know, men. On black men, there was yeah. so many. I mean, from Eric Garner. I mean, even from uh, you know, right before this was Trayvon. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, and he wasn't a cop, but it's still there was so much. This was it, this, it hadn't died down even now. Sure. There's still a, a, a new ways of looking at this, um, and the good thing is, I, I think that we're actually talking about it. Yeah. Which. Yeah. Which is out of all the the real positive is that the fact that we can speak on these things, um, and it creates a, you know, it kills the stigma of talking about certain things like this, and that's that's what I think the job of great comedy is. Um, when you see a great comedian who can really bring, because this is the deal, you can't. There are certain things you can't say seriously. And ever get anybody on your side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no one will ever see it that way. They just see it all, and it gives people reasons to be defensive. Mm. Right. But comedy instantly takes that defense off. That's one of the things I love about this episode and the skill of this room is that it's still a Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. Like, it's mm. still, there are jokes throughout. Um, you know, Andy, as as Peralta says, like, stuff like that doesn't happen to me. We sh- You show him in a hockey mask climbing in a window. A cop yeah. goes, what are you doing? He's like, a prank. He's like, have fun. Yeah, yeah. go like, ahead. Carry on. Oh, my God. That 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 was my whole college uh, like experience. Yeah. You're like, I mean, 
they were doing the craziest stuff. I was like, you would get arrested oh, for this. I, if I did the same thing, yeah. my the guys I went to college with were doing, <laughs> right? There would I'd be in jail. Oh. We talked a long time in the joke about uh, in the room about that joke, and and I'm so glad that we kept it because it, <gasps> the the you know concern was is it in some way belittling what Terry's going through in this episode, but but the effect I think that's clear in it is it just <laughs> illuminates the dichotomy. It's of a what real contrast. <laughs> yeah, are yeah. It's a legitimate contrast, yeah. and it also keeps the ball off. It keeps the episode from being an after-school special, right. a very yeah. special Absolutely. blossom. Yeah. And right. that's a very tough thing that we try to land in these episodes is the level of comedy that we can have. Um, like in Mumu specifically, we had written this kind of shoehorned comedy set piece mm-hmm. in the um, diner scene yeah, when Terry is talking to Maldak. And I don't know if this has been talked about because in other articles or not, but we shot it. And it was just that Terry and Maldak are having this very intense conversation. And Maldak is saying, you know, guys like you don't, don't aren't in that neighborhood. You should have told me you ha- were a cop. Yeah, you should have uh, told don't, your don't forget your badge next time. Heated. It's a tete-a-tete. And it's like getting like more and more um, intense. And then in the background, there was this couple having this legit comedy scene that we were cutting to. Yeah. Uh, of just yes. these like two very funny UCB performers back there. And that was like our way to have some comedy in this very intense moment. And then at the end of the day, we saw it and we were like, this is hurting us. Okay. Like, this is a, in- this is an example of the comedy. We need to let this scene be what it is. Yeah. And just trust in those little little comedy moments like Jake in a hockey mask that'll get us through, remind people we're Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but not robbing from what the episode is trying to say. Hitchcock saying he got stopped for being black, get woke Scully oh is like, yeah. I mean, you're saying what it is, but it's also yeah. a, a little hit of comedy. Of, yeah. Where know? are the get woke Scully sweatshirts? I know. I know. I know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> NBC.com store. I- what was the lady who was interrupting us um, during our Andre and I during the, it was a dinner party? Oh, Margot, Margot, yeah, that was a great. That was a great. Yeah, exactly. You know what yeah. I mean, it, oh. it just kept it. It's the balance of all that stuff, right? It's um, we're gonna get to that in a moment, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, first of all, Andre's pretty uh, petty disdain for okay. my coworkers is always <laughs> great. Um, the point gets made that. It doesn't shouldn't matter whether I was a cop. You shouldn't treat anybody this way. You you know because it, it the the cop escalates things right away. You're like, oh, I'm just out here, and he's like, oh, oh, oh lower your voice. I mean, it's yes. it's the it's a different thing that I is experienced by me, a middle aged middle class white man. You know, um, things like this have never happened to Jake. Um, he right. he doesn't do it, and I love that it gives Terry as Terry Jeffords the opportunity to say that's not the job, like. I'm just doing my job. That's not the job. Not the job. Right. And, and that's like what Terry was saying earlier. That's this in, in Maldak's mind. That's the, that's not just an argument he's making to Terry. That is what that character believes. You know, it, but again, it made the me problem. question where I've ever been self-righteous mm-hmm. in these kind of Interesting. things. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that was the thing because you, we can always point it out when it's done to us. Right. Uh, no matter what it is, either even if it's a, a boss or employee, you're like, yeah, look at how he, he's a he does this. But when are you a? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. More when, often than you guess. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, look, yeah, look, yeah. More I'm often than you want to admit. More Absolutely. Often, yeah. yeah. First of all, I, I, yeah. I totally had to revamp my whole life because I I realized even you know with this toxic masculinity thing, and, and again that name that whole thing has been thrown around so much, people don't even know what it is anymore, but. 
I just literally, because I was a man, I believed that I was worth more than the women in my life. And that was the way I was raised. Sure. I mean, my culture, my area, or I, it was American culture, it was African American culture, it was all kinds of cultures. Sports, that, probably. Hip hop culture, uh, yeah. from all the stuff. It was like, hey, man, you were worth more than her. Until I realized I got it wrong. Hmm. You know what I mean? And it was like, and it was, that was self righteousness. That's all that is. That's, yep. that's privilege in, in all kinds of ways. And I, I tell you, it's funny because. I've seen where black men can point out how they've been treated wrong and instantly the women in their life are like, you, I, I, listen, at the rally for racial equality, they can go to their girl and go, hey, and you're like, what is happening? And they won't even see that everybody has to be equal. You know what I mean? And, and, and that hit me hard um, to the point where I had to examine everything in my life. Like, and it's, and it's wild because the things that would pop up, you just go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is this is me. This is this is what I was doing. Um, and uh, it's wild because, you know, these, these, this is why it's really, I, I just think, I'm very thankful for these kind of experiences and, and being able to act and kind of examine because that's what, that's what acting is. It's literally shining a light on the human condition. Yeah, you know how human, how the human beings, how, how do we think? How do we? And then you all of a sudden go, wait a minute, that's you know. And it's funny I do, because I've I do seen, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen this is another thing. I've seen a brilliant, brilliant actor who do this. He says he's this brilliant, amazing movie all about romance and love, and he is the biggest like <laughs> crazy like womanizer you ever want to meet. You're like, how can you even? But yeah. unless you can put the two together, there's you. It's hard, you know. What I mean, you, you can go ahead and have that kind of thing and just go with the image. And I decided that you know there was a time I had to like, like instead of acting like a person who does great things, you kind of have to be a person who does great things, and that's different. That's fascinating. The idea of like the actor's uh, introspection, like being a a, like a helpful tool in terms of just everyday behavior. Like what would the world be if everyone like sat back and asked themselves, why, why do I do the things that I'm doing? Yeah. That's why actors are crazy. <laughs> always therapy, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> We're in therapy all day. You know what I mean? Look, me and Mark, and Mark you know, listen, it's all therapy. I'm uncomfortable and I'm moving on. <laughs> um, in a scene that is simultaneously hilarious and horrifying, um, Cagney and Lacey, uh, being babysat by Jake and Amy, say, is it bad to be black? Is being black bad? And um, you see the wide-eyed adults go like, oh, we are out of our depth. Like, you know, first of all, parenting jokes, parenting jokes. But like, this is a gigantic question, you know? Um, and I would guess it's a question that comes up when you're raising young children of color. Yeah. I mean, it's, they have to, get that message that it's they're different first of all um I, I i said this a little bit earlier but you know ever since i was 11 years old i was treated as a grown man um by the police in my area by teachers um there is a very quick turnaround you don't have an adolescence you go from kid to grown man instantly um and this is what i have to warn my son you know my son is 14 
Uh, he's now tall as I am. But I, I have to tell him that I said, you know, you have to be very, very careful because you're not going to be treated as a kid. Um, which is, you know, when you look at young white kids his age, they're all, listen, I'm in college. I'm in college with, I was in college with 22-year-old guys that they were like, hey, you kids. Yeah. I was like, dude, this is grown. These are grown men. Right. But, but they they don't look at, it's, it's wild because everybody who I knew who was African-American was like, man, you are bad. You're a grown man. And you were treated as such. Um, and when I look at Trayvon Martin and I look at that, that, that was a big lesson. I mean, the kid carrying Skittles and this whole thing. And you just go, no, listen, no matter what you think, he was a child. I don't know what to tell. And there are people who say he's not a kid. And you're like, he was a child. That's a child. Um, and when you look, I've had this conversation with my son about being very, very careful because I was schooled in Flint, Michigan, knowing that anything can happen, especially when you're talking about law enforcement. But my son was raised very differently than I was. I mean, you grew up very privileged. He has a, he's had his own room. He's had his own thing. He's, he's, he doesn't, it's a different mindset. And I have to always remind him that other people don't see him uh, the way he sees himself. Yeah. And I, just to be careful. That is unfair. Yeah. Uh, it's an earned it, burden. So we all have to be empathetic. I think empathy is the key. You know what I mean? That's sure. why they opened That's up that whole self-righteousness uh, speech for me because you can easily be like, yeah, they're all bad. But not, nobody's all bad. Right. And nobody's all good. It's all this gray, like crazy gray that we all have to sort through. And it's messy. It's really messy. To set up this clip from the episode, Terry Jeffords, after experiencing racial profiling in his own neighborhood by another police officer, wants to file a formal complaint, but Holt believes it's a mistake for his future, that there could be a backlash. In this clip, Terry has accidentally barged in on a dinner party Holt is throwing to tell him why he's going to go over his head to submit the complaint himself. Terry, I know you're upset, but this is the right thing to do. You're this close to the city council position, and that's just the beginning. It would be a shame to jeopardize that. Look, I get that the guys in our precinct wouldn't profile me, but it still happened. Only one precinct over. Which is why you need to keep pushing forward in your career so that you can change the system. Terry, you're a great cop. You can become a chief or higher. How long will it take to make change that way? Maldak is on the street now. You know why I became a cop? Please share. Because when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a superhero. Stop it! Stop bothering little Terry! Or what? Or I will defeat you! In this moment, we see a heroic uniformed police officer standing behind little Terry. Whoa. I wanted to help people like that cop helped me. But right now, I don't feel like a superhero. I feel the opposite. When I got stopped the other day, I wasn't a cop. I wasn't a guy who lived in a neighborhood looking for his daughter's toy. I was a black man, a dangerous black man. That's all he could see, a threat. And I couldn't stop thinking about my daughters and their future and how years from now they could be walking down the street looking for their kids' moo and get stopped by a bad cop. And they probably won't get to play the police card to get out of trouble. I don't like that thought. And I'm going to do something about it. So I don't care if it might hurt my career. 
I'm filing that report. Even if I have to go over your head to do it. Kind of seemed like you were going to get up and leave after saying all that. It's <laughs> a great way to get out of that. That was good. I mean, it's the balance, right? It's the it's the heart and the heart and the heart and and the comedy that that tempers it all. That's a lovely scene. It's a heavy scene. Um, do you know where in the arc of shooting that that take came from? Was that was that earlier in it? Was it later in it? Um, did you shoot it a bunch? We shot it a bunch. Okay, we shot it a bunch. Um, it was very emotional day. I bet. I was drained. I don't even know how to say it. It was uh, because it's just, you start to lose like where you are and where you begin and where Terry Jeffords becomes. You know, it was all... Probably a closer channel to your real life yes. than, than a lot of the words that you say as yes. Terry Jeffords, I would guess. Yeah. And, and again, I, I, you know, I'm very, very close. I've never played a character that's more like me than Terry Jeffords. I mm. mean, but this was so like... You also understand that you're speaking in uh, for so many people who didn't get a chance. You know, you're also making an argument for a bunch of people who were forced into silence. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's it's you start, so you feel that on top of it. You know, um, and Andre had a great argument. You know, and 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 with Andre's argument too was that hey, wait a minute, you know, like you don't want to. Because the key is to keep working. Right. Mm -hmm. Fix it you know from within I mean? like, the like, longer game. You taking your ball and going home is not really the answer either. Right. You right. know what I mean? So now it's like we have to work within this thing. So what are we going to do in it? Not, okay, we're just going to ship off and go because that's not realistic either. And I love that argument. I mean, it's it's the longer game versus the short game. Yeah. Um, and I love that it's it's that Holt sees so much potential in you. You you know you've already risen, as you said. You uh, began as a sergeant. Now you're a lieutenant. You could he sees that you could be a great chief someday, and think of the influence you could have there. But it's that bargain that you make. It's that 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 calculation of saying, do I plant this flag right here, right now, or you know do I play the longer game? And it's such an interesting thing that gets said too. Is that you say. Obviously, nobody within the nine nine would would treat me like this. But this guy's two blocks that way. Yeah. You know, he's right there, out there doing it right now. This is the thing everyone knows: retaliation is real. Retali retaliation is real. Consequences. If someone for is going to come back. You know, I mean, if uh, even with he said she said, even with with Mumu, um, with any stand, there's going to be repercussions. Mm -hmm. Someone's not going to like it, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and you're probably going to pay in the short term. Mm -hmm. That's just what's going to happen. I mean, you know, like I said, something today you lose. It happens here, right? Yeah. He files the report, uh, ends up not getting the city council liaison position. Is it because of this? Probably, I mean, maybe we don't know. Probably, but we don't know. We and we can't. We don't answer it because, to our characters' knowledge, we can't answer it. Right. Uh, because that's the truth of how we feel the situation would be handled. Which is that it's now this, like I was saying before, this unearned burden that Terry's character will have to live with. Of like, I don't know that that's the cause and that's the effect, but I have to be okay with it because I made the choice that I made. And, it, and he didn't ask to be in that position. And from a storytelling perspective, it's kind of something you would avoid in most stories. Most stories are barreling towards an answer. 
a right answer or a wrong answer. And the end of an act is a right answer or a wrong answer. And then the end of the episode is a right answer, almost always on a comedy. Mm -hmm. And for us, we were looking at what's happening. There isn't an answer, unfortunately. You can't. It's not cut and dried. So the only thing you can go to is the human experience of uncertainty and making a personal choice and then never knowing if you're right. And it's not it's not like an episode where you can say it's a win, nine nine everyone. Mm-hmm. So we have that that slow scene out with Terry and Holt of drinking some whiskey and just being okay with the decisions they've made. Justin Noble and Terry Cruz, thank you for being with us. Here's to doing the right thing, conversation. And here's to doing the right thing. Attention listeners, this is Andre Brower. And this is Stephanie Beatrice. We are your official Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the podcast intermission and or mid-show bumper announcers and or palate cleansers and or hosts. That's our official title? It is. We are here to inform you that the podcast is not yet over. That's right. We're only halfway through. We have another panel coming up next with our host, Mark Evan Jackson, and other great guests. Now, let's get back to the show from the official Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the podcast intermission and or Mitchell Bumper. Enjoy the rest of the show. Nine-Nine. For the next segment of today's episode, we're going to switch topics and have some of our behind-the-scenes production team on to discuss shooting and the importance of post-production on the show. Few people know how much work is done in post-production, like in the editing room, where editor Courtney Carrillo and co-creator Dan Gore spend hours making sure that every joke lands and every shot flows seamlessly. To discuss that and more, with us here are director of photography Rick Page, co-executive producer Courtney Carrillo, executive producer and writer Luke Del Tredici, and co-creator and executive producer Dan Gore. Dan, Luke, Courtney, and Rick, welcome. Let's start with where we find ourselves right this moment. Uh, You just wrapped principal photography on season seven, right? Mm -hmm, That is correct. We've just finished uh, shooting those episodes. There were what, 13 in this season? There were 13 episodes, yes. Excellent. So we we finished our 143rd episode overall. Holy cow. I know. Like, think about that. Um, (laughs) Courtney, I've forgotten. How long have you worked on the show? Uh, Since day two. Since day two, two, basically. I didn't work on the pilot, but... um, I started working. Is that what one. you mean by day two? That is what I mean by day two. But the Crazy. pilot took like more Months. than a week to do. <laughs> more than, more a day. than a day, certainly. Episode two. Uh, fair. Fine. Uh, I feel like uh, we're so, here. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean episode, episode 103 was the first episode I edited. No, Courtney's been there from as early as you could be on the show without having been at the pilot. Okay. Although technically I did work on the pilots. How uh, so? Uh, the he was pilot, an extra. I was an extra. The pilot was, I think, originally about 30 seconds uh, over in terms of what the network will allow the time to be. And we had to cut 30 seconds out for this, the rerunning of it. Oh, wow. So I just took willy nilly hacked, <laughs> hacked 30 seconds well, out. No joke. Where do you find 30 seconds? Have you seen the pilot? Uh, <laughs> um, Pauses like this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Honestly, like pauses? In, in pauses, uh, in dialogue, and then jokes. Okay. Something um, has to die. Yeah. And but for 30 seconds, I mean, the pilot really did breathe much more than a current episode. If you watch all of season one, all of the episodes breathe a lot more than they do now. And the pilot especially. I mean, I'm sure that you probably got 12 seconds out of establishing shots and pauses and and stuff like that. And then... Two jokes. Yeah. 18 seconds is like two jokes, two yeah. runs jokes. 
That's disappointing in, in, to think checks. of like how much love and care goes into the crafting of a joke, and then to think that like, oh, that's nine seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's yeah, that's crazy. Sad. I mean, sometimes it's even you have a very funny joke where you say the word vendetta in a very funny way, and that's you know two seconds, if that. Yeah, a vendetta. You say vendetta. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I was there. But a lot of, I mean, writing for writing and and producing a show for network TV is there's a lot of like math involved. I mean, all of our scripts end up basically exactly the same page length all the act breaks are on the same pages every you know within reason you start it's still creative and you're trying to do the best thing but you just internalize all these rules about basically how long a scene can be in terms of two and eighth of a page you want to get the act one break is almost always on page 11 for us the act two break is almost always on page 20 the act you know three break is always on 27 and then when they're cutting it's like you're always trying to make it the best it can be, but it's also like you're just constantly looking at the time and the clock. And It's all base 11 math. I get it. Base 11. It's all base 11. Not to put the cart before the horse, but when we do these special episodes, episodes like The Box or Ticking Clocks, mm-hmm. the thing that is difficult is we're breaking our formula, and so therefore all of that math becomes very confusing for us. We don't really know mm-hmm. what the page count should be for the overall episode or where the act break should fall because things are happening at a different pace or there is more when you're writing a script there's a balance obviously between the dialogue on the page and the action lines on the page and typically one of our typical scripts if you looked at any given page they all look pretty similar but when you do an episode like ticking clocks or a halloween episode or um trying to think of another episode or the box the balance will be different so the box had a tremendous amount of dialogue because the pace the pattern is so quick right the, well the pattern is so quick but because it was an episode that took place all in one room yeah, so no, we didn't have no new slug lines very oh, little I see right. yeah. so then it becomes a question of of how of how many pages to do and conversely an episode like uh like a halloween episode has a tremendous amount of of action mm-hmm. and action could you could have a paragraph that you've that you've written that's three eighths of a page long. I mean that'd be a tremendous paragraph, but it could describe tremendous, <laughs> especially when Luke is doing it. It could describe one action. Luke is known to write actions like, you know, on a crystal clear day, a black raven. I'm known to bring poetry <laughs> to this slog of a job. <laughs> but no, it's okay. I'm known to cut it all back down to a bird flies in the window. Right. <laughs> Courtney, uh, episodes begin getting edited uh, the week after they're shot or the, as, they, as the dailies come in, or how does it work? Uh, they start getting edited on the day after the first day of shooting. So okay. on day two of shooting, they're editing day one of footage. Um, and how long does an edit of an episode take? The editor usually takes about a week and a half okay. to get their cut together. And then the director comes in and does typically about two days of editor, editing. Um, and then they hand over the editor's cut to, or the director's cut rather, to uh, Dan and the producers. And then from there, uh, including you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the way our system works now is then I usually take a couple days to kind of do my pass on it um, and cut it down in time a little bit because by the time I get it, it's what, what would you say the director's cuts are typically about four minutes over these days? Yeah, the director's cuts are, cuts are four minutes over. And then by the time you are done with it, it's a minute and a half over. Yeah, typically. typically yeah, somewhere. Two, what's the target? Is it 21 minutes, 29 seconds? 21. For, what do you mean? What are we, what are we airing? Yeah. 2108, right? 2130. 2130. 
thirty. But I thought when you factor in the the peacock and all that stuff, yeah, it's twenty one thirty at the top of the show. And we have twenty one thirty, a very nice credit sequence, but it unfortunately yeah. takes time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, everything all in. It's twenty one thirty, which we lost five seconds. We were twenty one thirty five when we were on Fox. So interesting. Um, yeah. huh. So I mean, we have great editors, but at the end of the day, Courtney has made himself indispensable and therefore the, our workflow is in some ways inefficient because it all goes through at the end of the day it all goes through Courtney oh, and then Courtney and I and with a lot of input from Andy Andy Sandberg is very involved in the editorial process so we usually do a cut which we put out to Andy and we get Andy's notes on it which are you know pretty voluminous mm. Um, and then we incorporate his notes and we then put out a cut that the studio network sees and then they give notes and Andy weighs in again. And then we put out a final locked cut. One, uh, four minutes of a director's cut, four minutes heavy is a lot, right? I mean, that's, that's more uh, than some pauses. We've had, we've had the first Jimmy Jabs games was 11 minutes over <laughs> yeah. on the 22 minute episode. But part of that is also... You know, the directors, I think, are encouraged to include everything. And so partly those scripts are too long. Partly, you know, the, the show hadn't found its voice. They're also like, there's sometimes like a lot of improv and they'll have the, the actors will have long runs and the directors will like them and leave them in to make sure that they get seen by Dan and Courtney and Andy. But the reality is they're probably never, got, you know, a, a 45 second improv run will is very funny and you want to make sure everyone knows it exists but it probably will never make it into it and those were early i mean it's rare now that i mean i think in the last three years the longest the most over we've ever been is like six minutes on one of those cuts it's very rare that it's even that and jimmy jabs was again because it was an unusual episode with a tremendous amount of action and not only did we have the action but we had people narrating the action and so as a result we ended up, it actually ended up being relatively easy to cut down because we just turned all that narration into VO and then jump cut all of it. So VO stands for voiceover. And then jump cutting is when you cut it in such a way that it doesn't look um, fluid. You're you're aware of the edit, for mm-hmm. instance. And so, and actually, I think it, uh, Jimmy Jab Games is one of um, our fans' favorite episodes, I think, from this whole series. And part of the reason is, I think by the time we cut out 11 minutes, all we were left with was pearls. It was like joke, 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 joke. And it actually had the pace of what our later episodes had. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, You feel as though the pacing of the show has changed over the seasons? Oh, yeah. How Describe it. How do you mean? Um, I mean, the easiest way to describe is there's not much air in the episodes. Mm -hmm. Like, it's dialogue heavy nowadays. The experience is like taking speed and then taking <laughs> Ritalin and then falling into a vat of cocaine. Or so you've read. <laughs> Rick Page, you are the director of photography, um, but you didn't start that way on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, correct? Correct, yes. How long not. have you worked on the show? Uh, same as Courtney from the very beginning. Day two. <laughs> Day two. <laughs> um, right and, after uh, lunch, right? Yeah. <laughs> and f- uh, for a number of seasons, you were operating a camera, right? That's right. Yeah. Is that the title of that? What is the yeah cam- camera operator? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I started out as that, and um, eventually, like in season four, um, we we did uh, an episode, um, the fugitive, uh, where there was a huge second unit at Paramount with the van flipping over, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they gave me a crack at shooting that sequence, and then were some, some other things that we did some. Some other, I don't know, establishers and stunt footage and that sort of thing. Yeah. 
And so, uh, so then from there on out, you know, up until season six, I would get a sort of a guest DP slot. How cool. Which was great. And then, um, and then, uh, things changed, uh, Gio left, uh, season six and, uh, these guys were nice enough to give me the nod full time. Uh, Nice enough. You had more than earned it. Rick is unbelievably talented and great. So what a DP does for those listeners, Mm -hmm. not in the know. Um, is uh, they are in charge of basically the way the show looks and uh, the way in which the show is shot, the cameras that are used, the angles that are used. The In conjunction with the director, they sort of set up, they really, especially on a show like ours, Rick is vital to not only, you know, making sure that the right cameras and lenses and lighting are are used, but also really often involved in helping the director uh, block the scenes and um, and we shoot in a very specific way, which is called cross shooting, where we have, even though it's called a single camera show, we have two cameras, three cameras going at any one time. So if I'm talking to somebody and I'm facing them, over my right shoulder would be a camera facing them and over their left shoulder would be a camera facing me. Mm-hmm. And then there would be a camera between those two cameras that gets what we call a two shot because it has two people in it. And... Uh, but that allows, especially when we have great improvisers like Mark Evan Jackson or Andy, uh, it means that there's always a camera on somebody who's speaking, or almost always. And mm-hmm. so we can use uh, whatever happens in any take. So a traditional camera uh, setup would be you would really do a single camera, and then you'd turn around. You'd have to change all of the lighting, and you'd turn around and then look back at the person who was just speaking, uh, Luke worked on 30 Rock for years, and that, that's yeah, how they, they shot. Did that. Wait a second, 30 Rock shot with a single camera? Single camera and film. Till the end. 35 millimeter film? At 16, I think, but till the end. That's crazy. It was crazy. I mean, and, you know, I, part of it was there was no improvising. They, they, I think partly because of the style and partly because of the writing, it was the actor said the words exactly. Nobody strays even like a, a single word from the scripted line, but, you know, it, it was very... Uh, it, it's it, it's very hard on set to feel like when you shoot that way in comedy that 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 it's like it's hard to know if it's working often because you're yeah. sort of like you're watching you know one I mean you're watching one half of it and you're not seeing both people that was also shooting on film meant that we had the old school grainy video tap so you're not watching now we see monitors we're standing behind Rick on set we see basically what the show is going to look like there's there's color correction that's done after the fact but for the most part we can see what what it's nearly final product. yeah what a scene is going to look like and that you're looking at a a, a like a jittery black and white huh. video so when you finally got into post and you saw dailies it actually dailies the footage that comes in every day you were like not surprised but you were a little bit nervous to see exactly yeah what it would look like anything it's, Rick, it was a crazy way to shoot not much shoots on film anymore right no very little actually yeah. it's it's a lot of it is digital and that and it's exactly what we're talking about it's so that you have options and so you can you can run improv you can run alternate takes you can do much more be judicious about it um, because digital is so much cheaper than than what raw film would would cost and have to go through you know process and transfer and yeah you'd, you'd never be able to to do it on budget like you do now so on this show also we have separate people pulling focus mm-hmm. right and uh they're called focus pullers very good and that this is real sometimes <laughs> is it's real. hard to know yeah. whether dan gore is kidding no, no. um the, that, I, I mean it's <laughs> so you always your, difficult he's you, actually being serious but but yeah. it, 
And so uh, when we block a, a scene, for instance, they measure how far the tip of the lens is to each of the actors at the various points. And then they're, I mean, they also adjust on the fly, but they're kind of programming in mm-hmm. to their, so like, uh, imagine if you were taking a picture with a camera, an old school SLR, if you will, single mm. lens reflex. And oh, wow. the instead of your own hand wrapped around the lens, somebody in a remote location sometimes 20 feet away, is actually pulling the focus, turning that knob. It's fascinating. Well, and it is, it, it actually, it's, it's a skill set that is, that is really uh, specialized because these focus pullers don't always know what the actors are going to be doing. And so they'll take reference marks and they'll, they'll get their measurements, but they, they have to be as uh, intuitive as the operators in terms of what's going to happen within the scene. And sometimes you know, we'll tag something on a desk or somebody will pick something up or a gun comes out of a pocket and, and it's like, you have to go to it, you have to react and you have to understand distance and, and that sort of estimation. And true, true or false, just to get to know each other, they spend a week together and, and the focus puller is the hands of the operator. They feed, he sits behind him and feeds him. (laughs) He bathes him. No, it's not Why true. are you doing this? It's not because true at all. It seems it's wrong. That's how you. I would do it. I. I would have you know camera camp. You that's could ask. Oh my god, to do it before next season. I bet no. they would do it. I bet they would know. <laughs> no. Luke was going to say something valuable, and I cut him off because I had that. I was just going to say that the focus pullers have the classic thankless job, which is that they do when Absolutely. they do a good job. No one notices that they've done anything. It well, just looks in focus. I, I try to tell them. Rick notices, but nobody else. To be a focus yeah. And then when they when they. If they ever once like slightly are off, the, the shot's out of focus. We have to go again, and everyone well, sort of like groans a little bit. Yeah. I understand, Fuck but it's like them. there's you, like a lot. You of, get noted. Yeah. I feel like they get noticed mostly for like, the, the very few highest like which is goalie phenomenon. Which or is, NASA higher stakes, which is rough because you know, look, there's a lot of intention that goes into each and every one of these setups. It's mm-hmm. it's three cameras cross shooting, but. When you sit in on these tone meetings and you know what Dan wants, when, you, when you're talking with the writers and you understand what's coming from the scripts, when you know that the actors are giving their all or maybe they're sick or maybe they've got a tight schedule and they've got to you know, be in and out, it, it puts an incredible amount of, of pressure because you've got to get basically every single take correct. You can't do a shot five or six times and go, well, I missed the first five, but I got it on the first take. Well, no, you don't understand. The director's getting different levels of performance and different options here. Right. Every take has to be right. And so that 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 is a it's a big job. And you want to make sure that that Courtney and the editors are getting all the footage that they need, options and and ways to cut around so that they can cut time without sacrificing the look or the the story. And so so this camera team, they they work they work really hard. I have to yeah. tell you, like every now and then we'll be watching. It's so infrequent because they really are almost always in focus, everything. But sometimes I'll, I'll say, or Courtney will say, is that soft? And then Courtney will pause it and then he'll put on a pair of glasses <laughs> and like an old man, he will get about three inches from the oh, screen God. and to determine whether, but it's the most adorable thing. He gets up off his rocking chair. He, he edits on a rocking chair. And he goes, Courtney's got to see if it's, you know, he's like speaks like a Civil War veteran. Anyway, the point is they do a great job. No, and, and it, but it's a, it, but it's a whole team. It's front to back. Sure. You know, we're, we're talking mostly about post, but this is, you know, from what the writers do to what, to what happens during The writers are like pre. Yeah. To what happens while we're shooting. Like during. You know, and then, yeah, and then post. You mentioned earlier that um, there is a, 
not formula, but there's a typical version of an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some that sort of break that form. Oh. Um, you mentioned Ticking Clocks. Um, that's, a, that's an episode that effectively takes place in real time, right? Mm-hmm. A hacker has uh, infiltrated the Nine-Nine and is wreaking havoc in the building. Um, Sean Astin as Sergeant Knox is uh, trying to get to the bottom of it. Where did the notion for this, uh, this episode come from? Do you remember? Was this a, was this, who wrote this one? Uh, uh, Carol Cole, Carol Cole wrote, wrote it. it. Um, I think we, I feel like Luke was very involved in at least the breaking of it. Yeah. I got to do, I got to make a big timeline on one of our dry erase boards. And that was very exciting to me mm. with, um, you know, Luke's kind of a timeline guy. The previous year we had had, we had done this episode, the box, which was broke form in a different way, mm-hmm. which was, it was entirely just, uh, Andy and Andre Brower the entire episode was one interrogation and that had Sterling K. Brown. That had been um, a really great episode. And so we were trying to think of other ways that we could oh. sort of break our typical form. Um, and the real time one, which uh, plenty of other shows have done, uh, seemed very but appealing. None to as us. well as we did. Um, and, and that was appealing to us, not only in that it, it got to, we got to sort of challenge ourselves a little bit and, and break the form, but unlike the box, it got to, we, we could do it well, including um, the entire cast. We also felt like, you know, uh, a, t- a show about cops it's unnatural a ticking ticking something with ticking clocks and something with a bomb are very natural uh worlds and then it was fun to also expand it because that episode the reason it's called ticking clocks with the s on the end of clock is because there are so because we have also the the countdown for the burrito and we have the countdown lasagna lasagna, yeah, lasagna. lasagna. yeah yes. I mean, jocelyn gives rosa Sorry. a countdown and the the hack that that so Knox is giving yeah. them a, a, a countdown. It was it's a little bit of a writer's joke also because we we're constantly talking about a ticking clock, not as literally as that, but often in an episode you you talk about adding a ticking clock, which is like to give the story some drive and some momentum, you you impose an artificial time deadline on the story that you have to you have they have to accomplish X by Y, y time. Um and so it's often a whether it's a note that comes in from the studio or a self-imposed note, you talk about adding a ticking clock. And so we decided with that episode that the fun thing to do would be to have every story, every B story, every all the C stories, everything have a literal countdown going. So the title of this episode is A Big Middle Finger to the Network. Okay, <laughs> interesting. I, you know, in retrospect, and I think it was for a little while entitled Mama Maglioni, and I do wish we had titled it that. In fact, a friend of my daughter said, I think it should have been entitled Mama Maglioni. Really? Yeah, you use it as uh, as sort of the exclamation, you know, blow to to a lot of the act breaks. Yeah, right? yes, yeah. Every, every one of break. them. Yeah. Yeah. Every act break. Mama Maglioni. Yeah, uh, but there's a lot of the stakes, a lot of jeopardy here, right? Uh, for Scully and Hitchcock, it's the lasagna, getting the getting the garlic bread back in time to to match with their <laughs> to match yeah. with their lasagna. Uh, Amy doesn't want to miss out on this, you know, heist effectively on the the solving of this thing, so she leaves the the dentist and is making her way across town. Um, Rosa and Jocelyn is a is the a dentist story. is, I believe, your brother on the show. Is that right? I don't know. In, in, from season one, before you, is that before we had no, met we had Kevin? met him because we right, cast, cast a person who looked yes. like. Oh, you. there's That's a there's an, there's a season one B story where Amy overbrushes, goes to the dentist, and Holt knows a dentist. She gets caught in a lie somehow. I don't even remember anymore. Right. But Holt happens to know a dentist because Kevin's brother is a dentist. Interesting. Um, 
And then, yes. There's a, the way that the episode is shot uh, is dynamic. There's a lot of running. There's a lot of like uh, people uh, scrambling to get inside elevator doors and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was great. We had a, we had steady cam. I wondered about that. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, knowing how these guys wrote the script and knowing what Courtney and the guys are going to need, you know, in the, in the edit, it was like, well, how do we come up with a visual, you know, um, how do we come up with a visual style that that doesn't depart too much from what our show normally looks like? Mm-hmm. Still gives them the options that they need to cut for time without with knowing that you're not going to be able to really cut scenes like what would normally be the case or cut lines necessarily. So we had to do a lot of overlapping from scene to scene, which put a you know a tremendous amount of work into continuity of background, continuity of what actors are doing, props, yeah. you know, set dressing, um, and um, we we were able to pull off some some pretty neat work. I, this is. Probably one of my favorite episodes. So a page count like this, there's probably more stage direction in a in an episode like this. So like- this, we actually we were we had decided we asked beforehand. Courtney said, psst, "Dan," and I was like, "If you're going to say, psst, you should whisper the whole way through." And anyway, no, he <laughs> said, uh, "Hey, are we going to tell the truth about what happened with that episode?" And I was like, "On this podcast, we always tell the truth mm-hmm. because that's why fans tune in. They yeah. want to hear." The nitty gritty. Sure. And the truth is... Warts and all. Warts and all, my friend. And the truth is, there was a wart on this episode, but we effectively froze it off with a with uh, a little bit of, of ingenuity. How? Well, the... I mean, I want to get off the wart thing, to That's be what I'm doing. That's what I said. <laughs> how? Yeah. Well, but how implies how did we freeze off the wart? So how we're did still you on the wart. <laughs> so the problem was that when we shot it, we ended up being about... After it was edited down, and we did not take major cuts. It was just... Our page count was off because we didn't take into account the overlapping of the scenes and some of it I will take some responsibility for because I thought it was going to be very difficult to edit because there was so much moving. So usually if in a scene where two people are just standing there and talking, you can cut out any lines because it doesn't matter. The background isn't changing. But if two people are walking and I cut out the middle of the walk and you were at the start of the block and then for the next line you're at the end of the block, it looks idiotic. You can feel it. And so this had a lot of movement. So we trimmed down the scenes after the table read out of fear that we wouldn't be able to do so afterwards. Anyway, we trimmed too much and we were about a minute short. And so our, our solution was to shoot Hitchcock and Scully just eating the lasagna yeah. for a full 30 seconds, I think. Sound I think they like... actually shot it for over a minute, but we yeah. used exactly 30 seconds of it. And they were, and they had no lines of dialogue, I believe. It no. sort of works, right? Because they're like, it's it's a mind-blowing concept to them of like, well, have you ever had lasagna without garlic bread? And they're like, you can do that. And so they do it. But it reminded me of something. It felt, did it coincide at all with that weird post credit scene on the Avengers where they're eating like, no. Sandwich? No? <laughs> no. It feels Sopranos-y mm. to a little bit to me? Maybe Sopranos. Yeah. The other fun thing about this episode in particular was there were, like, for example, with uh, the art department, there were three different elevator sets. It was our main elevator. Oh, yeah. And then there was an elevator on our our bottom floor precinct level, mm-hmm. which is out uh, on oh, New yeah. York Street. For example, at the end there, when, when uh, Hitchcock and Scully are running in, they run into one elevator, jam the doors with a box of the lasagna, and then when they get inside, it was shot on a different day, yeah. different set, different elevator. They ride up. They have dialogue with Melissa. Then they exit the elevator on our main precinct, third elevator, third day. There's a stunt involved uh, at the end where a stunt Andy presumably takes out a stunt Sean Astin, right? Uh, Andy refuses to have a stunt man. He does all his own stunts. 
I'm required to say that. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, presumably those were both stunt people. Yeah. Um, but that adds to time and that needs to be rehearsed and yeah. you shoot as close to the dynamic physicality with the real hero actors, uh, we call ourselves heroes, <laughs> um, uh, as you can front and back, right? And then when it when you go to shoot it quickly, it's the guys that are good at getting hurt. Now you're really giving away our secrets. I, I will mean, say our people do a lot of their own stunts. And in that episode, uh, Melissa jumped over that car hood. And mm-hmm. I believe in, in pre-production, there was a lot of talk of a stunt person and Melissa specifically said that she wanted to do, wanted to do that stunt, and right. she nailed it. Similarly impressive, uh, in the Florida episode, Andy um, took a burrito from inside a hot tub that was soaking underwater and then ate that burrito, and he did that himself. And, and there was a tremendous amount of debate in the- Same thing. Exactly, same <laughs> thing. And in the production meeting about whether Andy would be willing to do that or if we needed a stunt mouth, and, and we ended up with just Andy doing it, and it was great. So um, Melissa jumped over her car and Andy ate a burrito. Um, I love knowing that that was Melissa. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Let's talk about the episode, The Box. That's an interrogation with a ticking clock of its own. Uh, everything on the line, as uh, Holt says. Uh, Luke, is this an episode that you wrote? Yes, this is one I wrote. Um, was- Although, again, it should always be said when I say I wrote it that we write all of them as a staff and it's entirely a group process. That That's true. But I do feel like you were uniquely responsible for this one in a way more so than most. Most, I would say, if I could find a Luke joke in it, I would I would be startled. <laughs> no, I'm kidding about that. Luke's always <laughs> very involved and integral to everything. But I, I do think this was really, this was really your baby. This was yeah, the first really episode right. you cared about and probably yeah. the last. And did you... <laughs> My goodness. That is not sarcasm. <laughs> Rick, uh, does it help or hurt to be a, a bottle episode, to be in a box? Like, do you relight for – there are two different rooms, first of all, in the box, really. There's the behind the mirror where, you know, Holt and, and Peralta are sort of planning, and then there's the proper interrogation. Um, is it – are you still relighting between setups, between overs and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it has its own different, you know, challenges in that you're trying to be, you know, maintain continuity. Um, you know, we – we still shot for five days, you know, but mm-hmm. but we're in and out of that interrogation side to the viewing side to out, you know, in the little precinct area. And mm-hmm. when you when you revisit that and you revisit it on another day, you want to make sure that things are matching, they're consistent, so that it's flawless when it all comes together. So, what would change day to day? I mean, don't uh, forgive my ignorance, and I don't mean to uh, refer to your version of the script as being wordy, but uh, aren't you setting lights to the certain? Uh... Andy grows a full beard in a day, <laughs> so there's that. But every time they come in, Andy's one, he might be leaning, Holt's leaning back by the mirror, and then he comes up, and you right. just want to adjust the lights I see. to right. follow the actor. Or his curl might be in a different place yeah. than it was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, with a with a curl. thing that happens in uh, time-coded, you know, this afternoon to tomorrow morning kind of thing, you do, there's no changing of outfits. He hasn't been home to shower. Like, right. that stuff does matter. Uh, Holt's like, bow tie moves around, for instance, a little bit, like probably signifying fatigue. Like, yes, you know. yes. And there are some actors on our show who use glasses and sometimes they use them to a dramatic effect. And in different takes, they might put those glasses on in a different dramatic moment. And so, but that's also our, we have a wonderful uh, scripty, that's what we call them, uh, Grace, who who really monitors that stuff very well. Mm-hmm. What is scripty short for? Script coordinator. supervisor. Script supervisor. So there's because script coordinator, and then there's writer's assistant, and then there's script supervisor. Script supervisor is the on-set script person. We call them scripties. It's a gigantic job. Yeah. 
So an interesting thing about the box was when we wrote it, we were thinking about, it seemed like a good way to save money. I think we were over budget and we thought we're always getting pressured to do a bottle episode. Over budget season-wise? Season-wise, okes okay. yes. We we'd shoot too many action sequences or have too many guest stars and it eats into our budget. No, um, and, and so we were like, well, this episode that all takes place in one room is really going to save everyone a lot of money. And then as we start planning it, we have a little interrogation room and a little viewing room that are off the like off our main set. We've shot a lot of great and terrific scenes in there. But spending an entire episode, I think, in conversations with Claire Scanlon, who directed the episode, um, we really wanted to make sure that there was like a little more dynamic life. There's some great creeping dolly shots in that episode. And you want to have more freedom to move cameras around and, and just get different angles because you're in there for so long. And we ended up having to build a slightly bigger version of our set like from scratch on a different one of our stages to shoot that episode. Is that real? That's that's needs speaks the truth. Of yeah. the of the interrogation room. Yeah. That, but then we were like, it's well, not, it's weird to have an interrogation not, room. So then we built the entire thing bigger and then we just no, just the interrogation room. Yeah. But it's a different it plays as a different interrogation room. Yeah, okay. it's, it's the first floor interrogation yeah, room. Yeah, I think it's, we it's not, have a line dialogue yeah, and then didn't it's not yeah, there's probably it's not meant to be the same one somewhere that right. says first floor. Now having spent the bulk of five shooting days in that place, do you go a little stir crazy? Yeah, people get a little nuts. I mean, we have good food so well you know, i mean we're very well taken care of but it, like still that would be no i mean yeah and, and again it's in, it's important to to not let that fatigue or that stir crazy get in the middle of what your focus is with the job because mm-hmm. you you need to make sure that you're still getting what you need to, to service the 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 script and service uh the the directors and and as an and, actor do you find that that happens it can yeah um I, the there uh, I've shot in caves recently, and uh, and uh, you uh, after a day when you go into the cave and it's daytime, and then you shoot all day and you come out of the cave and it's night. You're like you feel robbed somehow. Was that for a movie? It was for a movie, yeah. But I mean, part of the challenges is just you know reminding everyone like, look, we got to finish strong. We got to bring right. this through. It's a marathon. We don't want to. We can't give up. We can't give up yet. You know, we got to pull this thing all the way through to the end, and 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 then you you, you hope to get there. That was also an episode that. I think because it was all in one room, it would have been possible to condense. We shoot five days normally on that episode, but because it's all one room and really just the three actors, we could have condensed and tried to to jam through and gotten it done in four days, which would have, again, saved the production a little bit of money. But I think we wanted to make sure that so you aren't burning people out in that episode, you really wanted to make sure the actors had time to like get multiple takes and focus on focus on the scenes and not just running through. We we. We shot five. We shot five full days and gave each day a little more time to really like focus on the scenes and focus on the work. Some days you're really hustling and you don't, you know, you always do do try to get the best, but like sometimes you, you know, you, you run up against the reality of a network television schedule. And there wasn't there wasn't a lot of comedy in this one, and so a lot of times you you, you know these guys Bear get burned. Semen, Rick no, 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 in the sense that. In the sense that you're you're under a lot of pressure to to get these because these guys are going to deliver it you know, funny so many times. Right. And then they're going to burn out. Mm-hmm. And so because there was a lot of um, procedural, you know, dialogue and, and story bits, it, that it did allow us to take a little bit of extra time. Um, when Holt gets sort of uh, his buttons pushed about the etymology of doctors, um, it he is screaming. Like that's, he is a force. Yeah. I mean, Andre can be very, very, uh, on a scale of one to 10, he can give you a 16. Yeah. For sure. It's, I mean, he goes off. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's not, like that after a lot of table reads too. Yeah, <laughs> just a real. <laughs> There was one cool shot that stuck out to me. Uh, oh, one. <laughs> in particular. Good heavens. Um, Holton and Peralta go out into the hall to discuss it. And like dead center, deep subject, oh, yeah. you've got S- Sterling K. Sterling Brown Baker. kind of uh, Hannibal lecturing them a little bit. Like it just feels like he's lurking back there. I don't know if you ever rack focus to him. It, you can just feel him. Like yeah. obviously deliberately blocked that way. Yeah, yeah. No, certainly. I mean... It- I think Claire probably wanted to see him in the background as that's what they're talking about. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we try to always tell something, you know, keep that frame dynamic and keep it interesting, even if it's something static. Yeah. Whereas that what you're referring to is it's just a static, you know, 50-52 shot of Holton and, and uh, Jake. But Well, you failed the rest of the time. Photography on season seven wrapped uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, something like that. Uh, when will you finish and deliver the last of those episodes to the network? Uh, I believe we're scheduled to finish and deliver everything by the end of January. We when are, are you going on vacation to Japan? Uh, yeah. So our last mix, I believe, is on January 15th mm-hmm. or 16th. And I'm on a plane the next morning to Japan to go snowboarding. So, so if there's any the show problem, needs to be done a problem. before that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Japan is famous for its snowboarding? I don't know this. It actually is. is yeah, it? January. Um, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Rick Page, you do some of the best uh, behind the scenes social network, uh, social media stuff I've ever seen. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Rick Page underscore R I C K P A G E underscore. It's fun. You have a, a great eye as a photographer um, and pick up neat things that listeners to this podcast I think would really, uh, really dial in. Like some, you know, thanks. Some cool stuff. Thank you. It's something that I'm. I'm just. I'm proud of the show. I'm proud of the work that we do. I'm proud of our entire team. It's been something. It's been a real privilege for seven years. And, um, and the behind the scenes stuff always fascinates me. I mean, we don't give away, you know, everything we can't, oh, it's not we can't, spoilers. we can't, yeah, like we can't tell our it's secrets like- and our spoilers, but, but I do think that it's interesting to, to figure out how did an idea, you know, come to script or how did they cut this together? How did you shoot that? And what was the, the technique used? And I, I love that. I, I think that stuff fascinates me. So if I can help other people enjoy it as well, then great. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a wonderful workplace. Um, you are all good bosses, and uh, you curate groups around you of of great people. There's no drama. There's no ego. Um, massive changes have to take place on the fly, and people say, okay. They know they can do it, uh, and they're fun to work with. It's a great place to come to work, and I thank you. Well, we thank you for coming and coming and, I would say, playing with us. It is play. It's a ball. It's a little weird to say thank you for playing with me hmm. to somebody, but and another adult. Title but you know what I meant. Your yeah. sex tape. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye. Man, that was cool. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the podcast is hosted by Mark Evan Jackson. And it's produced by Grant Rutter. Edited and produced by Trey Booty. Written by Bo Rollins. With coordinating producer Beatrice Shaheen. Do you want to say it? Say what? The ending. Oh, right. Nine, nine. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody.